Yeah. I mean, the, the past 15 months have been uh, unbelievable. I believe we may be the fastest growing enterprise IoT company in history. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Eli Harris, has had an exceptionally busy 15 months. His company, R0, which is revolutionizing the disinfectant industry, has raised $60 million, has done $20 million worth of revenue, and has found itself at the right place at the right time in the midst of all this COVID craziness. In today's interview, we break down how he uncovered a method for bringing best-in-class disinfecting technology at a better price to all sorts of different environments, how he's connected to the IoT Internet of Things movement, and how failure and betrayal in his last startup set him up for success in his current one. I took so much away from it, you will see how his energy is infectious. Here is Eli Harris. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. It's so fucking hard. It is so hard. Like everything about it is just, yeah. Um, So so let's start there. Let's talk about hardware because, you know, software, software as a service, B2B SaaS, all that stuff is like the rage. It's, it's, you know, the, the thing that I think everyone conceives of as, oh, you know, this like infinite margin project that I can just update over and over and over again. Not that it's easy, but it's a, it's a kind of very sexy arena for a long time. Hardware was not sexy. It was considered not venture backable or people were skeptical of it. And yet you find yourself at the helm of a venture backed startup that's selling hardware that has raised more than $60 million Take me through why you're drawn to hardware and what it, hardware it is that you're building. Yeah, so to, to be entirely honest, I, I think this hardware enables us to build a software product. Uh, and we wouldn't have built this hardware if it existed in a, in a format that was uh, what we felt uh, effective enough. So we, we really built hardware out of necessity. And, and all of the hardware that we're building uh, enables us to offer a software platform that we believe is going to uh, add truly disruptive value to, to this disinfection industry. So just to kind of zoom out for a second here. So in, in the wake of COVID, I, I got in touch with two entrepreneurs, both mentors of mine uh, who, I, who I've known for quite some time. And we started thinking about how there's certain events throughout history that create everlasting societal and infrastructural changes. And in a dark way, we kind of likened what was happening with COVID to 9-11, how after 9-11, we have the Department of Homeland Security you have TSA with 14,000 agents. You still can't take a water bottle or wear shoes to the airport. You go to a ball game, you walk through a metal detector. These are all new standards that were directly created and developed as a result of 9-11. And some of that psychological scar tissue after the event, uh, it accelerated the creation and adoption of those standards, but we never regressed. The world fundamentally took on a new posture around security. And I, our thesis was that in the wake of COVID, this was another event in history that was going to create everlasting changes. And that word security was going to broaden to biosecurity. Uh, and the world would have a new posture around uh, how we regard human health uh, in all shared spaces, largely indoors, where there's more risk. Um, so we started kind of unpacking what the disinfection industry looks like today. And our, our response to the pandemic was to go uh, hose buildings down with chemicals. 
and, and that's what we did. I mean, we, we were spraying things down, wiping things down, uh, taking in electrostatic sprayers. And, uh, and we started looking at this industry. And the truth is, it's hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap. And it's governed by Ecolab, Clorox, Diversi, SC Johnson, these Goliath players, all, all worth multi-billions of dollars, and they all sell commodity chemicals. And, and this is one industry that, for some reason, because it's never been sexy enough, there's never been the heightened awareness, it's never been touched by technology. In every other industry, we, we've brought technology. Where you have retail, you have Amazon. Automotive, Tesla, space, SpaceX, music, Spotify. But for some reason, this disinfection industry has just never been touched. And there are a lot of tools today that could, uh, that if we were to whiteboard, we could make the space much more effective, but it's, it's been overlooked. So we started kind of going on this journey to understand, okay, what are the best practices that exist today? What are some of those tools that have been effective at preventing disease? Uh, why are we not using them more broadly? Uh, and what is the value to society of creating solutions and offering solutions uh, that do in fact create safer spaces. Uh, so that, that's kind of where we started. So let's talk about the the, the product though. You, you talked about it being a connection to software eventually yeah. and it can become a platform, but even like, like you're talking fundamentally, these are chemical companies, your solution wasn't chemical. Yep. So what we did is uh, we got in touch with Dr. Richard Wade and Dr. Wade actually is the former executive director of OSHA. Uh, he ran Cal OSHA for 15 years. He taught at Harvard, Oxford, UC Irvine. Uh, he's on the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, we like to call him the, the Michael Jordan of biosafety. Uh, he, is, he has forgotten more about this industry than any of us will ever learn. Uh, and and we, we, we adore him. Um, so he led us on a study of hospitals. And our thought was that ever since their advent, hospitals are a place where you actually encourage the sick to gather. And, and somehow we have to learn to control the transmission of disease in those premises. So very high risk, a lot of pathogen, and yet somehow we can still, for the most part, all go to the hospital and walk out and not get infected with something else. So, so we think of that as the gold standard. And we, Dr. Wade led us on a study of operating rooms to understand what do operating rooms do as part of their terminal turnover to prevent uh, what patient A went in there for from transmitting to patient B who uses that room after them. So we learned that hospitals do three things pretty well. Uh, one is they practice good hand hygiene. You see doctors scrub in and scrub out. Uh, and what's actually really fascinating is that uh, hand washing did not become a practice until the 1918 Spanish flu. So some smart nurse realized that the nurses who were walking back and forth between the morgue and patient rooms were carrying virus on their hand and spreading it. So it was actually with that realization for the first time ever uh, that we started washing our hands. And that is now a common practice of, again, a single event in history that created everlasting societal infrastructural changes. Um, so in, in ORs, doctors scrub in, scrub out. You use chemicals on high touch surfaces because chemicals are effective. And then the gold standard in all hospitals today is the use of these large UVC light towers uh, that essentially nuke these rooms uh, in between surgeries. Uh, and, and UVC is actually extremely old technology. And this history is very fascinating. But uh, in 1903, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded for the discovery of the germicidal properties of UVC. There is no known organism on the planet that is UVC resistant. UVC can inactivate any 
virus, bacteria, mold, fungi. Uh, the sun produces UVA, B, and C. UVA and B penetrate the Earth's atmosphere. UVC cannot penetrate the atmosphere. So we manufacture it here on Earth. But because it never reached Earth naturally, no organism in the world has ever evolved to resist it. So it can penetrate the cell walls of any organism and it ruptures the DNA or RNA so that it can't reproduce. So we run these systems in between surgeries. They output a lot of light and it will effectively inactivate any organism in that room, in the air or on surfaces. So this is the gold standard in hospitals and it's a $5 billion market. Every well-capitalized hospital in the country uses UVC light in between surgeries. But what's crazy is that it never left the hospital. And what happened is the market erupted in 2010. And that was with Obamacare's Affordable Cares Act. So prior to Obamacare, Medicare and Medicaid were reimbursing hospitals for hospital-acquired infections. So if you went to a hospital for a small surgery and you left with staph infection or something else, that was a $40,000 liability for the hospital, but it was reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid. And when we passed Obamacare, we did two things. We raised taxes and two, looked to cut spend in healthcare. So Medicare and Medicaid said, you know what, hospital, this happened on your watch. We're not going to cover it anymore. So for the first time ever in 2010, hospitals finally became liable for these infections. And because we started using these systems in hospitals 80 years ago, there was an overwhelming body of evidence that the hospitals that use UVC light had 93% fewer infections than hospitals that didn't. And because these infections are so costly, these manufacturers came in and selling it to healthcare is very difficult. There's only a small handful of manufacturers and they do what's called value extraction. So they say, you know what? It doesn't matter what it costs us to build this. There's an overwhelming body of evidence that shows in a hospital of your size, with this many operations per year, we're gonna prevent X number of infections. So this system, even at $125,000, it pays for itself in a year. So it's become an extremely logical purchase and these, these manufacturers extract value. It's an artifact of our healthcare system and they charge over $100,000 for these pieces of equipment uh, because it's a very logical purchase for the hospital. But it has nothing to do with what it costs to build these. And my, my background's in manufacturing and, and my partner is also out of the medical device manufacturing world. And with Dr. Wade's help, we said, fundamentally, this is a light on wheels with a timer. There is no rocket science. Uh, this is extremely old technology. All of this is off the shelf. This, this is not some crazy piece of intellectual property. So we went out and we actually ended up in, in the past 15 months, we've raised uh, more than $60 million dollars. Uh, from the same backers as Tesla and SpaceX. And we have John Doerr involved and some really big names. Uh, and in five months, we re-engineered a product and we built a piece of hardware that unequivocally, fundamentally has more germicidal efficacy than any system being sold in the world today, uh, unequivocally. And we're pricing it based off the bill of materials, not extracting value from the healthcare system. So can you talk about how like just just it, with more practicality you use in terms like nuking and you know uh, eviscerating all these living organisms and where my mind goes 
is the the effect that in certain ways antibiotics have had. And I'm, I'm not a pharmacologist to, to go into intimate detail, detail here, but it's a similar idea where an antibiotic get, gets rid of everything. And when that happens in your gut biome, sure, you're no longer sick, but now there's maybe some other uh, healthy thing that was living there that was otherwise um, damaged in some way, shape or form. So particularly here, I guess my question is, is the best practice still everyone's out of the room and almost like the x-ray machine, they click a button and that's when this UVC light happens. Like what are the best practices here to keep people safe if it yep. has such a you know yep. powerful amount of uh, force? Great, great, great question. So I'm going to unpack this and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to then segue into our product roadmap. Perfect. Uh, but, but yes, uh, there, there is no organism on the planet that is UVC resistant. Uh, and, and that means that it can also be harmful to human skin and eyes. So nobody should be in the room when it's running. This is meant for unoccupied spaces. Uh, because we output a lot of light, it's a very short cycle time. Uh, the ability for UVC to kill anything is a function of light times time. That is it. So what you do is uh, it, it's part of a, a, a terminal clean. So in a hospital, it's in between patients. Uh, in a school, you run it in the classrooms overnight. Uh, for a sports team, uh, you run it in between yeah, each practice or in the gym in between trainings. So th this is meant for unoccupied spaces. Uh, we have uh, infrared uh, PIR sensors all around the device. They detect heat and motion. So if anybody were to open a door, enter the space, the system will pause. Um, but one thing I want to say is that there is no silver bullet. That There is no such thing as risk prevention. The name of the game is risk reduction. You run this in a room, uh, and then you bring that viral pathogen load down to near zero. And you are, you are mitigating a lot of risk. Uh, as soon as Aaron walks in the room, whatever Aaron has is now a threat to that space. Um, and if you think about risk, I mean... Uh, so the, the probability and severity of illness is directly related to the viral load in the space. So if you're resetting that viral load every night, you are decreasing the probability that someone will get sick uh, and the severity of it, uh, because whatever Aaron's, Aaron's carrying now is starting from a base risk of zero, not compounding on the previous days. Um, that, that said, we, uh, this was our first flagship product. Uh, the hardware that we built, uh, it is effective. Uh, we, we built a damn good piece of hardware where we actually built our intellectual property. And what we're building off of is we are the first company to embed an LTE chip in the device. And what we can do with that is, so it's now a connected device. We can transmit data in real time to see who ran it, what room, what time. So for the first time ever, we're actually creating an audit trail around disinfection. Because if you think about it now, all cleaning disinfection is largely, uh, uh, it's manual compliance. You have people sign their initials on a log, or if you're really fancy, you might scan a QR code and check a box, but there's no way of actually validating what was done. So what we're transmitting in real time is uh, a live dashboard that you can access anywhere, any phone, any computer, and you can see okay, classroom 17 was disinfected at nine o'clock last night before I dropped my kid off at school, uh, but the teacher's lounge was missed. Or if you're going to a yoga class, you can see in real time, okay, the studio was disinfected at 10, 15 a.m. before my class started. Or if you're checking into a hotel, you have real-time data 
to show that the hotel room was in fact disinfected. So if you think about the health department today, you, go, you look in the window of a restaurant. There's an A, a B, a C. That is done based on a moment in time audit. Somebody comes into a space, they do an audit, they give you a score. The next day, the next week, the next month, you don't know what's happening in that space. But we have an ability to create a real-time living compliance mechanism to actually look at the practice that was done. And that has never been done before in disinfection. And so I, I want to touch on something because that, that brings up something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is, you know, one of the concerns or maybe not concerns, one of the bits of commentary, particularly with like later stage pandemic response in the early stages, it's do whatever we have to do because we don't know the exact, like how bad this is, how much it spreads. There, there was a lack of just data on what the problem was, but as you collect data, you start to hopefully pinpoint on the the high leverage issues and you know maybe pay less heed to the areas which are not so dangerous so like say taking a hike outdoors a couple months into the pandemic was actually like completely you know about as safe an activity as you can do you're outdoors you're not sharing the same air with people yep. your distance all that good stuff and so that type of cognizance is really important and what what I'm witnessing I'm I'm wondering if you're seeing the same is you know we need world-class disinfecting in our hospitals. That's like basically goes without question. I, I don't even know how you can necessarily conceive an argument there. But at the same time, in the same way that you're saying that like almost at a societal level, we're seeing these changes and you're referencing the TSA, I think is a perfect example where you can skew from pragmatic risk reduction into disinfecting theater, which is, yep. hey, let me show you me washing the, the plate in front of you as opposed to just washing it in the back where we've always washed the dishes, yep. where it's like, okay, somehow that makes me feel better. And, and we're humans, we're goofy. So there is a degree to which that does work to, to put the, the more neurotic of us at ease. But it, it sounds like there's kind of a pragmatism here to not only this response, but also where you're maybe selling in this to be utilized. Yeah, so you, you, you teed me up with, with so much here, Aaron. Okay, there, there's a lot I want to attack. So one thing I want to say, um, this is a, a bit of an aside, and then I'll, I'll answer your question directly. But one thing is humans spend 95% of their lives on average indoors now, which is unbelievable. And, and there's a book from jo Dr. Joseph Allen. It's called Healthy Buildings. Uh, and he teaches at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Uh, and that, that book has is, is taught me a lot. Uh, but one of the arguments in that book is that the facilities managers of your apartment buildings, of your office, the facilities managers of the buildings that you frequent in your day-to-day -day life have a higher impact on human health than your doctor. Uh, wow. And I think that's such a fascinating argument, right? And they did a study that shows that they, they tested all seven cognitive functions of the human brain. And if you're in a space with better air quality across all seven functions, uh, people perform better. And, and that data was significant. So it, we, it really is a, a huge opportunity that we have to, to really improve productivity and health by creating safer spaces indoors. And then your great question about when and where to disinfect and what is, where is real risk and what is theater? So if you think about cleaning disinfection today, it's all done based on time. Uh, every night you send a crew, every week you send a crew. That could have nothing to do with risk. So where we're going as a company is building on our software layer and data. So we're outfitting buildings with sensors and we're actually looking at utilization of spaces. Where do people go? 
what rooms were used? What's the density of people in that room? What's in the air? How many air changes per hour with your HVAC? Uh, is there how much CO2 is in the air? What about particulate matter? What about VOCs? So what we're doing is we're collecting data in real time on what is the actual risk in a space based on utilization, particulate matter, VOCs, CO2, and then we can automatically inform janitorial workflows. So if nobody used that conference room, then don't send your crew in there to clean it tonight. That's a waste of labor. If 10 people use this bathroom, I don't care if it's been two hours or two days, send somebody in there. If there's a lot of CO2 in the air in this room, increase the air changes on your air handler. So th there's, we have an opportunity here to actually get smarter and for the first time ever, disinfect based on risk, not time. And, and by the way, because these systems are connected, we collect that data to measure the risk. We can automate the activity. We can report on what was actually done. And then we can show the new real-time risk. So for the first time ever, we're creating this closed loop biosafety platform that is a living ecosystem that is data-driven, scientifically driven, and you can prove actually what was done, where, when, by who, and you can show the impact of that. And what that means, and this is, this is crazy. So I wish people would do it because it's the right thing to do. I wish people would say, you know what? You know, we, we want healthier people. We're going to do it. But if you think about a school, what this means for a school is if we can fundamentally and statistically lower risk, then that will result in increased attendance. And schools are funded based on butts and seats. Schools are funded based on average daily attendance. So we go into a school and we can say, hey, we're offering this solution. But you know what? You're not actually buying disinfection technology. What you're buying is increased attendance. And what that means for you is more funding. And by the way, attendance is directly correlated to student performance. So schools are also funded based on standardized test scores. So we can walk into this space and say, you know, forget about the technology, forget about the product. I don't even want to tell you about it. But what you're going to buy statistically is better student attendance and better student performance, which means two things. One, more funding for you. But secondly, fundamentally, we can prove that by creating healthier indoor spaces, we can actually improve the education of American youth. So we're right now working on a study, and I can't say it quite yet, uh, but it's actually being administered by the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Uh, and it's with one of the five largest school districts in the country. Uh, and we're now doing a semester long study where we're outfitting uh, a set of experiment schools against a set of control schools where they're using chemicals. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to prove at the end of this semester by having better data-driven disinfection with more effective tools, we can actually change the attendance and performance of schools. And, wow. and, and, and are we going to prove it mathematically, scientifically? Uh, it is unequivocal that we are statistically lowering risk. Uh, but is that going to translate in the real world? You know, we're going to find out. The, the models say it should work. It, it is science. Uh, the, the, the science says it should work, but is this actually going to translate in this real world environment in the semester? And if we can prove this, this will change the responsibility of all facilities managers in the world. 
That's wild. So I... The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So you talked about having this background in manufacturing. And what I kind of want to touch on here before we, we get too far into like the story of the background is... You sound more like a salesman than like a builder or a logistics or an engineer. Like, like, like what what I'm hearing is the epitome of the whatever the overlap is of. Hey, this is something that I was built to understand and built to have an advantage on. Something that I'm passionate about and something that the world needs, which is where all the best salespeople are located. You you can put a great salesperson and give them a, sh- a shitty product, and there <laughs> there's a ceiling on what they're going to be able to accomplish. Yeah. And it sounds like you kind of have that overlap there. So, do, you, do like your CEO? You've been a CEO before, but like, do you, I really hear the sales role come out of you with every kind of answer that you're sharing? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I, I've never worked in sales in my life. Um, I, it's hard to believe. Yeah, <laughs> ne- ne- yeah, never in my life have I ever worked in sales. Um, but what's, uh, but I mean, I my my job as as any founder's job is 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 to sell. If you want to be a founder and you're unwilling to sell, I mean that that's, uh, I mean it, it is hard. I mean you have to fight for everything you get. Nothing comes easy. I, I'm I'm selling to raise money. I'm selling to my uh, to hire, uh, I'm selling to partners. I'm selling the product. Uh, I, I need to build confidence and instill confidence in everyone. I mean, it, my my job is to project confidence and evangelize and, and draw people into this. I mean, if it, with if you have a, a wonderful idea or a wonderful product, uh, it, that that it's not going to manifest on its own. Uh, so that, that's something that I've had to to learn. Um, but I, I think where I, I've been able to succeed in it is I, I don't like the connotation of being a salesman. And even hearing you say that I got kind of embarrassed and kind of re- recoiled internally. And I, I don't like that connotation. I think of a, a car salesman pushy, yeah. uh, but, but I think that I really do care about what I'm doing. I really do believe in it. I really am passionate about it. And even though, yes, I am trying to evangelize and project and I am trying to sell you and I am trying to sell the audience, but I, I like to think that my authenticity uh, in my actual belief in, in what I'm sharing comes through. And I, and I think that I think it has and it, it served me well. Uh, but I yeah, hearing you say that, I kind of recoil. I, I, I don't like that that connotation. Um, it feels slimy. So I, I hope I don't come across that way. Absolutely not. That was not my intention in, in kind of framing it up that way. I I see this kind of really significant divergence between, like you're saying, the slimy, pushy type of salesperson that's basically a caricature or a stereotype that we kind of hold in culture. But then if you were to, so like, I think if you're not going to go start your own thing, and I, I don't think that every single person should be an entrepreneur, but if you yeah. were looking at different opportunities that have a high opportunity for compensation and potentially fulfillment, but but some people really do often optimize for compensation and you don't have the technical skills. Something like high level enterprise sales is one of the absolute highest threshold kind of compensation roles yep. that you can fall into. And those characters are not, um, you know, operating from the playbook of the pushy car salesman. They are complex problem solvers, world-class communicators, and usually normally 
deeply believe in the product that they're bringing to market. And so I just like to highlight that because I think it's actually a helpful reframing to see what you're doing. You know, the first 20 minutes, no one knows thinking like, oh, this is just like a salesman for the R0 company. Like clearly this is something that you have a, a, a full uh, investment in at like a personal soulful level. And so I, I just think that's an important reframing because, yep. you know, a, a lot of people end up in a role like the, the pushy sales person right out of school or something are trying to figure out like what's next or what's, what's better, or what's the kind of higher plane of this. And I, it, it sounds at least like you're yep. in that type of spot. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at, at this point, yeah, I'll pack a few. Also, I'm, I'm going to butcher this story, but I, somebody told me a, a while ago, um, Steve Jobs went in to give a lecture at, at Harvard or Yale or some fancy business school or something. And, and he said, he said, okay, he, he walked in, right? It's an auditorium full of people. And he says, raise your hand if you want to be an entrepreneur. Half the people raise their hand. Raise the hand if you want to be an engineer. Everyone raises their hand. Raise the hand if you want to be a salesman. Nobody raises their hand. And he says, you can all leave. And, 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 uh, and he was kind of saying that, uh, yeah, I mean, to, to, to be successful in whatever it is you do, you, you need to learn how to communicate, I guess, and, and how to sell. And, and selling can exist in many different forms, right? It's, it's not just pushing a product. It's raising money. It's hiring employees. It's uh, even getting suppliers to work with you. I mean, you there, there needs to be some level of salesmanship. And, and it's emotionally exhausting. And it is hard. And, and my job is all the time to be projecting, all the time to be on. And, uh, and, and it's and I, and I can't sometimes, uh, there, there are times when I think showing my vulnerability actually wins me loyalty. Uh, and, and that almost showing that vulnerability can be a form of salesmanship. But then there are also times when I'm scared shitless and I have to project confidence. Um, and and that, that it, it is really exhausting. But I, I also think that, so I, I have two partners in the business, um, Ben Boyer and Grant Morgan. And I, I was very fortunate with this. I mean, uh, ben has a, a, a different background than, than Grant and I. Uh, ben has been a venture capitalist for 25 years. Uh, when we officially were uh, conceiving this, uh, Grant and I thought that Ben was just going to invest. Uh, and, and he actually walked away from a 25-year, very cushy, very successful venture capital career uh, to try to prove that he can operate as well. So he's, he's, he's uh, operating full-time, uh, but he's able to focus on a lot of our uh, kind of financial strategy or corporate development. And then my partner, Grant, uh, he's a mechanical engineer by training, and he is a mercenary operator. He is merciless, uh, and he is so good, uh, and, and he's able to uh, really operate the business. So I get to you know, be on the front lines and flutter around and evangelize and, and play more of this role than I even thought I would. Uh, I would have to play this role anyway, uh, but ha being fortunate enough to have these two partners in the business uh, we all learn how to complement each other and take on different roles. And as an aside to that, I don't know how anybody could be a single founder. Uh, I mean, we, we have three of us equal partners in this business, all co-founders, and we are working seven days a week, 16 hours a day. This stuff is hard and I can't imagine ever doing it alone. And, and as I look to start making uh, angel investments of my own, and I, I've started investing in companies of my own, uh, I, I will never invest in a single founder um, ever. Um, I, I think that it's, it's important to uh, find compliments, have those checks and balances. And it's just, th this stuff is hard and you need multiple people who are that emotionally invested and are willing to sacrifice everything and anything and have their skin in the game. And, and it's, it's 
it's it's hard for me to believe how one person can achieve that. There are there yeah. are those unicorns. There are, uh, but this stuff is hard. Yeah. So I, I want to go into the background now, and and I think maybe we can start with this is not your first venture that you've started, but there is a degree you talked about confidence. Uh, at multiple points in this conversation, and I was I was just reading the tweet last night, and I cannot uh, think of the writers to to properly credit them, but they basically said that the only way that an entrepreneur gets confident is through a repeated series of failures. Um, it's only through knowing that you've had all those failures that you kind of have the confidence to to stride forward. And the truth is that most people don't want to go through those failures; they'll they'll give up before they reach the the quota of them to kind of. Uh, bring the the requisite confidence to the table. So um, perhaps through the lens of, of failure, just perhaps through the lens of, of building um, other businesses, can you talk about um, the past uh, that has led you to be able to found something and, and candidly hit such stratospheric growth that you know is literally the pipe dream of 99.999% of companies to you know I, to just restate the the numbers from the beginning again. Fifteen months, over sixty million dollars raised, twenty million dollars in revenue, blue chip of blue chip investors. Like that is the 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 pinnacle of everyone that walks out of watching the social networks fantasy. You're there, but there was kind of a long road to hoe before that. Yeah, I mean, the, the past fifteen months have been uh, unbelievable. I believe we may be the fastest growing enterprise IOT company in history. Um, I, I, I think that we, we are up there. We have the most powerful and famous investors in the world. Are, we, we've grown so quickly and I keep pinching myself. Um, I, I, it just, it's been unbelievable, but this is the positive manifestation of the last eight years that I fought so effing hard uh, and, and didn't uh, meet the, the outcomes I fantasized about. I, I've spent my my past eight years in the arena uh, as as an entrepreneur, giving my my full heart to different ventures, and uh, and, and didn't have the outcomes I fantasized. My my last one, I was um, I was 24 years old. I was living in Shenzhen, China. I, I was working at DJI, uh, the the drone company, uh, and I left with two engineers, two uh, Chinese battery engineers, uh, and the three of us went out to uh, try to build a uh, a venture manufacturing large lithium-ion batteries uh, for energy storage. I, I was the first one to leave. Uh, I was the CEO of that business. Um, I ran it for four years as CEO with with uh, with my co-founders. Uh, we ended up raising multiple rounds of capital. Uh, we we were we kept raising, spending, raising, spending. Uh, we grew to over a hundred employees. Uh, we built two manufacturing plants from scratch. We shipped more than two hundred thousand products to thirty-seven countries. Uh, I, I, for four years, I worked seven days a week, 16 hours a day. I spent so many nights alone in hotel rooms, in factories, uh, in Shenzhen, away from my family, away from my life in the US. I gave everything to this. It was my identity. It consumed me. Uh, I, we got all these public allocate, uh, accolades. Um, at that time, I was recognized as a, a Forbes 30 under 30, 30 entrepreneur. Uh, I was all over the media. Uh, everyone around me in my life uh, thought that I was uh, extremely wealthy. Uh, the truth is we we were not profitable. We were raising spending, raising spending. We needed more money. Uh, we were out we were out of capital and the capital markets had tightened in China. There was the trade wars between Trump and Chairman Xi and the company was struggling despite having grown. Our, our unit economics weren't great. 
And I flew back to China for a meeting. Uh, I showed up and the team had already colluded and I was uh, pushed out of my own company. So the company that I founded, I, I worked four years on. Uh, I was the CEO. I put my whole heart into it. It was my entire identity. Uh, I, I was pushed out of the company that I started. Uh, and, I, and I was fearful. I was, uh, I was broke. Uh, I had put all of my money into the company. Because I was a founder, I was barely paying myself. Uh, they offered me a, a negligible buyout, uh, which out of fear and humiliation, I accepted. Uh, so I took a, a very small buyout. Um, and then I, I came back to the States. I moved in with my dad. Uh, after eight years in mainland China, I started seeing a therapist. I was doing uh, some consulting work because I needed to make money. Uh, I, I was kind of rebuilding myself. Um, and, and that company today uh, that I founded uh, and was a CEO of for four years uh, is now valued at over a billion dollars. Um, and and I, have, I have no part in it. Um, and that, that, was, uh, that was hard. Uh, it is hard, not, not, not past tense. I mean, I talk about it now and I still get emotional. I get angry. I get sad. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm confused. I'm humiliated. I'm ashamed. I, I felt like everyone had these expectations of me that I didn't live up to. And I, I felt like I had failed. And I'm only now starting to take pride in that journey and those experiences. And I got wrapped up in the money and I thought it was all about the money and I didn't get the outcome. And and it was also humiliating to feel like I failed and was pushed out because I wasn't doing a good job. And uh, there was a lot wrapped up in it, but I'm, I'm trying to be proud of the journey. But the truth is that it did lead me to what I'm doing now. The only reason I'm doing what I'm doing now is because I had that experience. The only reason my partners saw me as an equal is because I had that experience and they valued that experience I had, not whether or not I made tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. And, I, and the other thing that actually helped me is I went and did some teaching at a high school. Um, and I was at the high school and, and I kind of use it as a, it was really cathartic, just an opportunity for me to kind of tell my stories. And, and I had gotten so wrapped up in the money and the outcomes. And, and I would tell those stories thinking as if I had kind of failed. And those kids, they thought I was the man. They thought I was so cool. And I loved that. And, and that reminded me with, with that kind of freshness and, and the eyes that they looked at me with that, no, it's about the journey, the experiences, the stories. And, and, uh, and in some way, it was actually doing some teaching at the high school. That is what helped me kind of get back on the horse and, and rebuild my confidence. Because I, I felt like they looked at me the way that I wanted to look at those experiences and was no longer able to. Um, yeah. If you had just told me that part of the story and not given the whole preamble where we already know all the amazing things that R0 has been up to over the last 15 months... I would wonder, is there going to be some sort of, you know, for, like for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You know, someone gets attacked by a dog. They just don't go near dogs in any way, shape or form to come back to a startup to not only come back to doing a startup, but, you know, unless I am mistaken, that type of equity financing does come with dilution, does come with oh, yeah. seeding of control yet again. To me, that's the most fascinating part, knowing that those things came in sequence, that you could get to a place where there isn't the, there's the same, you know, relinquishment of control, basically of the company, of the thing that you're building and, and be willing to kind of dip your toes in that water again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it, it was really hard. I mean, my, my, my first, 
I, I, I want to call it failure, but I, I'm trying to reframe that, right? And it, I, I don't think it's a failure anymore, but that, that first experience, I mean, it, it shook my faith in people and fairness and uh, it kind of broke this construct, right? I always thought that if I work really, really hard and I do the right things and I maintain my honesty and integrity, uh, that will be rewarded. And, and I feel like in that first experience, I gave it my full heart. I gave it the best version of myself. I laid it all on the line. I maintained my integrity. I worked so hard. I feel like I did everything right uh, by by the book. And in the end, I, I was not rewarded for it uh, financially um, or even able to hold my spot in it. And it, it just kind of shook my frameworks for life and, and kind of how it works. And uh, this idea of, uh, it, it kind of even made me question, like, what's the point in working so hard if I can't control everything? Um, I can do all the right things and still, you know, uh, not not have the outcome I wanted. Um, and, and I think only now, the whole time, you know, I would, I would go to therapy, I would talk to mentors, and everyone would tell me it's all about the journey, it's all about the experience, and, and you fail forward, and you have these things, and it's going to cut, you know, later, it's going to, you're, you're going to look back and be like, oh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because now I'm doing X, Y, or Z. And, and everyone would tell me that. And, and I would hear it. And I and logically, I have the awareness to look at it objectively. And I'm like, you know what? Like, obviously, you're, you're right. You know, I, I know that that's true. But my feelings could not catch up with that logic. And, and even though objectively, you know, I hear that wisdom, I understand it conceptually, but I wasn't living it. I wasn't feeling it. Uh, and it's actually only now that I'm on this trajectory where I, I am happy. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm working harder than ever and I'm exhausted, uh, but I, I'm with good people. We're on, we are on a rocket ship. This is a rocket ship. This is what everyone dreams of when they think about entrepreneurship. Uh, they, they don't know how unsexy and exhausting and hard it can be, but uh, this, this is the, the financial trajectory, at least that people fantasize about. But it's only now that I'm realizing that this success is not a product of the last 15 months that I've worked hard. This is a product of the last eight years. Um, and, and it is, uh, and that previous experience, it really is actually part of this journey too. Uh, and it is paying off and it is manifesting. It's just manifesting now. And I, I feel like only now my feelings are starting to catch up with that logic. And there are still moments that, I mean, I see all the time my former company on the news I, I still get the Google alerts. I torture myself. I still have, all the, I still set all the Google alerts. So every time there's an article written about them, uh, I get alerted and I, and I read every word of it and I read it three times over and I, and sometimes I cry and I get effing angry and, uh, and, um, yeah, I, I torture myself about it and it still hurts and I'm still emotional and I, I, I'm not over it. Um, but I, I try to fuel that into, I try to fuel that and, and use some of that negative emotion as, as, as fuel to drive me forward to now I have a chip on my shoulder to do better. I mean, R zero has to be bigger, better, greater. Uh, I need to, uh, I need to prove to them that what I'm doing now is, is, is greater than what, what they're doing. Um, but, uh, it's hard. It, it's hard, but it's definitely still a part of this journey. So, so I guess we can kind of wrap up on this question and then head towards our last ones, because I know we have to be cognizant of the time, but you, you said that you're, you know, you're doing the 16 hour days here and you got the chip on the shoulder from the last outcome. 
but you were also doing the 16 hour days then as well. And I, I know from experience starting my own company that to some degree, there's an existentialist element to that. Like this, I need to do whatever I can to make this thing work because it's, it's not a foregone conclusion that, that it will survive the way you may feel when you're at a, a larger company as a, as a member of the team. But was, was there a chip before that? Because the, even the choice to go follow a path with the 16 hour work week company one comes from a, a certain type of yearning, a certain type of burning that not everyone kind of has within them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was fortunate. Um, I was raised in a way that made me more comfortable with uh, an unconventional life path and, and, and seeing value in that. My, my dad spent uh, 12 years living in Kenya and he did everything from filming wildlife to uh, trading coffee and produce to exporting live crayfish. And, and he's a, my, my dad is, is been a serial entrepreneur, never, never a real uh, venture on the, on the way that, you know, that I've fantasized and trying to build never, uh, n- never a real uh, companies with employees, but he's just always hustled and optimized for life experiences. And he's been incredible and creative from everything from public showers to coffee, to film, to whatever it is. He's just always doing, he's always got 10 projects and maybe one of them works out. And, but he has a, a true zest for life. Uh, and, and he just truly enjoys life in a way that I think is really underrated and just put himself out there and he would always have 10 different things. And most of them didn't work. And some of them did. My mom spent 13 years, uh, mostly in India, uh, bouncing around, playing music, meditating, living all over the world. And uh, she came back, she was 30. She came back to the States, she was 30, and then said, you know what, I'm going to learn to fly. And then ended up going through flight school. And she's now a flight instructor. And she has her own private flight instruction practice. And, and neither of my parents have been on this level of, you know, doing grand business ventures. But they just they made me comfortable knowing that not everything needs to be linear and I don't need to subscribe to some track right away and kind of challenge this idea that I, you know, we, we send some of the best, brightest, smartest American kids to go work at banks or go work at Google or, or you know, or, or work for Bain or McKinsey. And I, I honestly, I think it's one of the grossest misallocations of American talent that we send our best and brightest kids to work in finance, big tech companies. It's it just, it, it, to me, that's, this is a, I guess a, a controversial remark, but I don't, I don't feel like that's really contributing unique value to the world at all. Uh, and, and I wish that those people who often come from more privileged backgrounds and have a safety net are, are the ones who end up with the educations that go down these routes. I mean, those are the people who I feel like have a sense of duty to do something more creative or to be an entrepreneur or to be a teacher or to take a risk. Because at the end of the day, the, the stakes aren't that low. I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm, I'm not from a, a wealthy family, but, you know, I went out, I gave it my, my, I swung for the fences and it didn't work the way I thought. I came in, I moved with my dad, I, I had a place to live. He was able to feed me and, I, you know, I slept on a pullout couch for a while, but, you know, that's, that's fine. I, I, my, my rock bottom is not that low, right? And, and I think that's the case for the vast majority of Americans, uh, fortunately, I mean, you have, you can go back and have a couch to sleep on and your mom gives you a foot massage and you have food. I mean, that's, that's great. So I, I, I do feel like there's this perceived risk and paralysis in a lot of our peers who are scared to make a change They say, oh, well, my contract for my job says it's three years long, or I signed the lease for a year. 
but like it, that's those are pieces of paper you can still like you can do anything and if it doesn't work out then you try something else um so i, I feel fortunate that i that i had that uh, i had my parents as role models I, I really do admire them for 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 that approach to life that's beautiful i'm sure every uh parent out there would want to give something similar to to their kids so that was a a beautiful note to wrap up on Eli. I do appreciate you giving so much time to being on the show yeah. and talk with me. For folks that want to learn more about R0, check out all the things you guys are up to. What digital coordinates can we provide for folks that want to learn more? Yeah, I, I think I'm actually really impressed with our website. Please do check out our website. It's r0.com, R-Z-E-R-O.com. Uh, there's multiple avenues to contact us depending on what you're interested in. And if you want to reach me personally, uh, LinkedIn is best. I actually don't use any social media, which I which I love aside from LinkedIn for work. Uh, Eli Harris R zero R hyphen Z E R O, uh, and feel free to to connect with me there. Perfect. Uh, we're going to have that linked in the show notes for this and every episode of the show at goingdeeperthere.com slash podcast or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But before I let you go, Eli, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Oh man. Uh, that, that's a great question. I, I think a big part of what's led me to the paths that I've gone down is just my willingness to ask for help. Um, I, I, I think that a, a lot of folks are scared to ask for help um, when, when I, I don't think that needs to in any way be something to be shy about. So I, I would say think about something that you want to achieve and if there is someone who can help you on that path, uh, ask them. Uh, ask them if they can help you uh, achieve whatever that is, uh, whether that's a specific project you're working on, something you want to learn. I, I, I think especially young folks uh, should not be shy to ask for help. I think you'll be surprised at, at the support that you receive. I can give a full-throated endorsement of that. I just bought a house. I asked all my friends to help me move and, and help me do with renovation stuff. And it ended up being fun, shared time together. Maybe once you're older, that's less uh, appropriate. But I can tell you that people love to help. It's, it's a gift unto itself. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much. I mean, like I said, we're working so hard and we are on this great trajectory, uh, but it, it is not easy. I'll take all the support I can get from, from you, from the audience. Uh, please do connect if you have any ideas. Uh, we're, we're, we're fighting hard and I think we're doing something special. So uh, really, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Right on. We just went deep with Eli Harris. Hope for not there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Eli. If you enjoyed it, then I would encourage you to not only hit subscribe so you can check out all future episodes of this show, but also to check out our deep back catalog. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Aaron Watson 59 a personal recommendation. I know there's a lot in there. I'll help you find one that's right for you. And we'll catch you in the next episode of Going Deep. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.